Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. I've taped three specials at this point, and what I what I know about the process, I feel like this point with the special, what I've learned is when you're taping the special as a comic, that's a moment. Number one, it's very enjoyable, but number two, you're like, oh, you guys see all of the tags and small, the small things, all the tiny work that I've done line by line. You see all of it now when you're taping the special because the audience is so geeked up. They want to know all that. You know what I mean? It's a celebration. So what I'm trying to do by going to Scotland is put more rivets and folds and craftsmanship into this hour so that it does work for an audience in the UK and the United States and Canada where I can get the best hour possible. And I think this gives me an element of throwing me off my game for a little bit. And just being like, how do you handle a UK audience? How do you slow your bits down? Are you desperate for those silences to be filled? Cause you know, you can, that's how, that's I, I think how a comedian falls into hack. Is you is you you know one type of laugh how to get one type of laugh from one type of bit, and then you just keep working that bit. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Having a great time this week, gearing up for a great, great holiday season and New Year. It's always a wonderful time of year, and I wish you all the best for yourselves, your friends, your loved ones, your business associates, and your families. I really, really sincerely hope you have an amazing Hanukkah, Christmas, Kwanzaa, or whatever it is you celebrate. If you need to get a hold of me, you can do so at Barry Katz on Instagram or Twitter or at barrycats.com. And as always, I want to thank you so much for all your support throughout the year. You guys have been incredible, and I will forever be grateful, and I will never stop saying it. And I'm very excited about the show today. An interview I did a while ago, and I've been holding it until something really special was about to take place for this man. And now it's happening, and so now I want to introduce you to him if you don't know him already. 
And if you do know him already, you're going to learn so much more about him. And I'm talking about respected New York comedian and actor, Dan Soder. So without further ado, I will introduce him and we will get going. And I can guarantee you, you're going to have an amazing, inspirational time today in part one of two parts of this interview. Dan Soder is a New York-based comedian and actor who's best known as Mafi on the hit series Billions on Showtime. His special, The Stand-Ups, is now streaming on Netflix, and his first hour-long stand-up special, Not Special, premiered on Comedy Central to rave reviews. He's also been featured on Comedy Central's half-hour, Conan, Inside Amy Schumer, and At Midnight. Additionally, he hosts SiriusXM's hit show, The Bonfire, with Big J Okerson every Monday through Thursday at 6 p.m. on Comedy Central Radio. But most importantly, you can catch him on his newest one-hour comedy special, Son of a Gary, premiering this month on HBO. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today, one of the most impactful young artists working in the comedy scene today. Please welcome my guest today, Dan Soder. Oh, man. Great to be here. Very nice to be here. This is surreal for me, sitting down and doing this interview with you, because we've never met. But I uh, grew up watching Comedian. So that scene to me is so iconic because it's in Montreal. It's Orny Adams doing new faces. You run the George Shapiro roast joke by George to say, you know, let me know if this is offensive, which is great. And then you did a thing that a lot of comedians, I think, who are my age, 36, like I've talked to Mark Norman, Joe List. We've all done this where you say to Orny, you go, here's what you do. You do this and you let the act speak for itself. And I think like, a lot of us have been, because we watch that and that's what we absorbed. Colin's advice, Jerry's advice, like young comics, we had this as kind of like a roadmap. And Comedian, I think, is the most instrumental movie of me becoming an, uh, a New York stand-up comedian. And that's like a really, so this is surreal for me. To be at Montreal and then to be like talking to you, it's crazy. Wow, that, yeah. that blows me away. For those of you who don't know, Jerry Seinfeld made a movie, a documentary called Comedian. I, yeah. I think I've said to Jerry, or I may have said to George, I said the only thing about the movie that's hard to wrap yourself around as a comic or anybody is Jerry starting his act from scratch. Yeah. Okay, so he's not allowed to do anything he's ever done before. Yeah, it's his return after Seinfeld. But he's flying from private jet to city to city. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. Little... <laughs> which is so funny to watch him work the DC improv. <laughs> and it's like when you watch that, I got that uh, as a gift for my 17th birthday. That I got that movie and I was, you know, uh, definitely wanted to be a comedian. Didn't know if I could do it, but watch that movie and uh, you started to think that was the road. When you're out of the business, you're like, oh, you go to D.C., so you fly there, and then you just go home, and then you start doing comedy, and you're like, holy shit, he was doing great. <laughs> like, you, That is not the road at all. But yeah, that that um, that movie, I th- I've t- like I said, I've talked to Mark Norman. Joe List and I bonded over quoting it. Just when we, because Colin Quinn to me is this—he's my favorite part of that whole movie. Right, and he gives like the best advice, and that's mostly at the table at the comedy. And it's like Colin—it's just just like Joe and I will quote like small 
uh, we'll quote like small lines. Like randomly, Joe will just out like, uh, hey, Nick, you got that friend in the think tank in Boston? And there's just like small lines that, yeah, I don't know. It's So this is, uh, this is awesome. This is Thank you so much. That, yeah. That's wild when I hear stuff like that. I just ran into Orny Adams. Yeah, who's a killer. Like I've watched him. I, I did a show with him actually here in like 2012 and watched him murder. I was like, holy fuck. It was crazy. So it, it's, it's interesting meeting him. Uh, you know, being around Jerry, being it, it would be smaller moments though. It'd be like sitting at the bar at Stand Up New York and you're like, I'm at the corner of the bar where Jerry told Orny that story about the Glenn Miller band. And you're like, that's fucking nuts. And by the way, if you, yeah, watch that documentary if you want to be a comedian. Yeah. Watch comedian. Jerry Seinfeld's comedian. Yeah. So I meet Orny. He's moving out of his apartment into a house on, I think, Mulholland Boulevard. All right. And... We talk and we're having a great conversation because I always felt like he, you know, there's a lot of people in the business that you feel that would want to run you over with a truck. Yeah. Oh, and you felt like he was one of them? I just felt like it was in the moment and I wasn't the rehearsed scene. Yeah. And actually Jerry had sent me the piece because I wasn't going to sign the release unless I saw it. And so they showed me the piece. This is a spoiler alert, but at the end of the scene, I leave and Orny calls me a cocksucker. Yeah, he goes, you're gonna let him talk to me like that? You let that cocksucker talk to me like that? And so and I- he goes, And the George just goes, what? What? I thought of what he said. It's like- I thought about, okay, I should have them take that out. And I said, no, let's just keep it the way it is. Yeah. And I agreed to it and I signed it. And then they sent me one of those big display things yeah. with the action figures in it. And I found out that I was an action figure. That's and great. so I had been in this area where he was, Orny was. I was having a meeting at the Starbucks Reserve. By the way, I don't want to help Starbucks any, but if you've never been to a Starbucks Reserve, not a Starbucks, a Starbucks Reserve, <laughs> it's like the four seasons of Starbucks. So that's just and, funny to and, start hearing about that, or now you have to like, now even regular stores aren't good enough, where you're like, by the way, there's, an ex- <laughs> there's a better this. There's this, but better. Anyway, so I had brought my uh, dog to the meeting. Yeah. So I go back to the car, he's there, and he's moving out, and we have the conversation, and I leave, and then I take the meeting, and then I go back to the car and I go to open my door and taped with the large plastic packing tape yeah. on the window is my action figure. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> That's great. Really? So okay. he taped it? He taped it on there. I'm standing there and then I hear him talking and I'm like, God, I thought he was thinking about it. And he said, I wanted to give you a little gift. That's great. I promised myself that if I ever moved out of this apartment and got my own house, that I was never going to look at that action figure again. Because I had you and me on my mantle, me lying down and you on top of me like that. And I had the, and I said, if I move to a better place, I'm going to get rid of this memory or whatever it was. Wow. So he, that mean like that's uh, what's, how serendipitous that he just runs into you. Also, it, you just kind of have to feel shitty knowing that you're the bad action figure in his display. You're like, fuck, what? Why? Because I, I, I signed the release. You want to be like, I allowed the scene to be in your movie. Now I'm talking like Jerry. <laughs> it's just like eventually. Yeah, that's got to be, I would, that would eat me up inside knowing that someone was upset at an action figure of me. I'd be like, ah, fuck. 
Now, I want to talk to you about something that I didn't think I was going to talk to you about. Yeah. I want to talk to you about Orny. Okay. Okay, because you're a New York City comedian. You're sure. An East Coast comic. Yeah. He started in Boston, but he is an East Coast comic. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I don't I'm not, this isn't the delineation of West Coast and East Coast. Sure. But one of the things that's fascinating in every profession, I don't care if you're a lawyer, I don't care if you're a 7-Eleven manager, I don't, it doesn't matter, a librarian. In every profession, there's somebody who, if you just observe them for one day or one night or whatever they're doing in their profession, one case. Yeah. And you're just watching from the outside looking in. You're like, this is the greatest person in this profession I've ever seen. This is one of the greats. Yeah. And so I don't have any problem saying this. When you go see Orny perform and he's doing what he does, the material is as good as anybody's material in the world. Sure. So you're observing somebody who technically has the great timing has that voice where I can name that in three notes. Yeah. Because it's very important for a comic to have an original yeah, voice, yeah. which oh. you have, by oh, the way. Thank you. Not just the original comedy voice, but you have the original yeah. you know, voice, not the Bojack Horseman voice. <laughs> yeah. It's a Thomas Hayden Church. <laughs> I would say it's around there. Or a Dauber from Coach, I've been called. Yes. Uh, not that you're on Bojack Horseman. Yeah. But the point being is that you see him and you're like, Holy shit. If you don't know anything. Yeah. And so you say to yourself, okay, well, here's somebody doing everything on stage technically right. Yeah. And he books acting jobs. Sure. Which is very rare for a comedian, which we're going to talk to about you. Yeah. So what is it? You don't see it that often. I mean, how, if I were to ask you, how many people do you know that have that level of writing, that level of performing, yeah. that are not necessarily at the highest levels. Sure. How many do you know? You don't know that many. So what do you think it is? You're entrenched, you're inside the sausage factory, you're all in the scene, you've started, you've been at that table, the comedy cellar, you've done 130 late nights. Yeah. You've seen how things progress. When you look at somebody like him, what do you say to yourself? What's happening? You might even argue in the quiet of your own home. This guy's as good as me you know, on any given night. Sure. This guy, this guy could be better yeah. than me. Yeah. It's um, comedy can't be looked at. I think so. Just to understand the question. Are you saying why is do I why if I look at a guy like Orny, why do I think why isn't he more famous than he is? Because that's something that he says a lot. Like when sure, I think, I think um, you can look at being inside the sausage factory and being someone that's uh, started as just a, a crazy fan that was just like super into it. But the, the, you know, from a young age, I just loved stand up, but jokes, and then I, I loved uh, impressions and voices, and I just kind of absorbed it for a lonely kid comedy is great because it's it's all these bright colors and all these different things and it's dark and it's kind of scary so i loved comedy and i got into it but what i quickly realized was if you think there is a linear path or a specific way or not specific but a recipe that you just a plus b equals c that's not what comedy is comedy is up and down and it's i think it's like self-discovery and i think it's finding comfortable 
being comfortable who you're with. I mean, you know that then anyway, you've probably seen comedians become comfortable who the, with who they are and then just excel at a rate that they never thought they could. Because I think that it it's more, comedy is more boxing in the sense of getting title fights. The toughest guy doesn't always get the title fight. It's a guy that's got the right promoter and he's fought the right guys and it's he's got the right look and it's his time. So now he's going to get a title fight versus someone who's just a straight killer, but no one wants to fight him because they don't want to lose. So it's, I think if you, if, if you stress like, why isn't the recipe working for me? It's because you, everyone goes a different way. I've been frustrated watching some people blow up and start to sell out. And you know, and I, I'm watching my friends that I started with, I'm at a level now where I'm at 15 years and I'm watching my friends start to sell out theaters and I'm half selling Buffalo. You know, I'm at helium and they're like, yeah, well, we'll get to the second railing. And you're like, all right, but, but I'm comfortable with that because when I was stressing about that, it, that only made it worse. But then I'm like, all right, well, now I can kind of fuck around. Now it's a half empty club and I can kind of just try to concentrate on being the funniest I can be or making, trying to make myself laugh. Because I, I always think that's when I get funnier is when I like start, when you start, when you stop trying to make other people laugh. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. I've been through this so many times. Oh, yeah, of People course. People that I manage where they call me like, I don't even want to be here Thursday there were 70 people here, and Friday the first show sold out, but the second show they only sold 50. Every single person goes through it, yeah. and then there's this leap, but I normally, the leap normally comes from film and television. The reason why, in my opinion, your leap in that area hasn't happened necessarily in the trajectory you wanted to is the Kevin Pollack syndrome. Okay. Great actor yeah great roles yeah dramatic roles the richard belzer syndrome okay. so when you're doing acting roles now that doesn't mean you're not funny mm -hmm. on the television show and you don't have funny moments because if you haven't seen I mean, uh, both of them are i mean kevin pollock and I, I actually worked with kevin this season yeah so if you haven't seen billions brilliant show your character is comedic in the sense that tim robbins would be very proud of you because hey you, i'll take that i love yeah. because you use comedia very very well your performances on that show the comedy moments mostly all come from your performances and your eyes and your reaction to amazing moments in yeah. the show. Those are the comedy moments, for me at least. Yeah, yeah sure, the awestruck and, idiot. But for most, <laughs> it's a dramatic role. Yeah. And so 
comedy audiences don't know what to think sometimes you know dan Sutter from billions it's like oh i know that but is he going to be fun whereas if you see somebody in a sitcom like jerry and seinfeld well you know, i mean that's yeah that's like but yeah i see what you mean you're you know what you're getting immediately you see louis and louis you know what you're yeah, getting you what, see aziz and master of none what i've been very lucky with and i've been very conscious about that because i think if you were to ask any of my close friends that are comics, like what would piss Dan Soder off? It's like just when Billions fans are like, oh, you're an actor, and then now you're doing stand-up. Because as I've obviously clearly said, I'm a, I'm a, re- I'm a huge stand-up fan, and I've you know, gone the right route, I know, as a comedian. But what's great and uh, what's been uh, kind of a lifesaver is doing the bonfire on Sirius XM with Big J because that's me. And then that's what I draw most of my stand-up audience from. So Billions, I'm like, ah, just sit back. If you like it, you like it. So Billions fans. But with Bonfire fans, when they show up to stand-up, I'm like, well, you guys get it. So we're going to have fun. So it's not the hour special on... Didn't you have another? Comedy Central? No one. That didn't do shit. Netflix half hour did a little. Bonfire on SiriusXM and podcasts have let people hear my real sense of humor and got to know me as a person. So they're watching this and they're probably like... I bet people know me well enough from the radio show that when they watch this, they can see moments where like, eh, Soda's probably pretty tight right there. You know, like, is Barry Katz calling him an actor or, you know what I mean? Because Billions has been such an incredible opportunity. It was Koppelman and Levine giving me that opportunity to learn how to act among the best, just the best in the business. Damien and Costable and Kelly O'Coin and Maggie Siff and all these people I'm around, it's just fucking like, I'm not an actor. I've never taken a class. I've just, you know, done stand-up. And I've talked to Kevin Pollack about that because Kevin started in San Francisco and my family's from the Bay Area, so we bonded over that and stand-up. And he was like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a comic. So you just go on and you, you know how to do sets. So you just kind of do that. All right, so you've never taken an acting class. No, not one. All right, so something in common with Jay Moore, never took an yeah, acting Yeah, I mean, class. Jay Moore's, I mean, and I used to listen to Jay Moore on Opie and Anthony and just <laughs> fucking die laughing. He still has one of my favorite clips that I bring up all the time, which is him calling in to ONA and Jim Norton, you just hear him go, Jay, can you please put Colin in Reservoir Dogs? And then Jay Moore does a perfect Colin Quinn in Reservoir Dogs. It fucking, God, it makes my heart sing when I watch it. He's like, well, I know one of us is a rat. And he just does a perfect Colin Quinn in it and like his Kaitel. Yeah, so those are all guys that I grew up like loving and watching and just being, it's just insane. This is what's shocking about our lives and entertainment. Yeah. Let's say Brian Koppelman brings you into the audition, okay? And beforehand, you got your sides. So imagine, if you will, you're being wheeled on a gurney, okay, into a hospital. Sure. Okay? You're on the table. You're making the decision who's going to operate on your heart. Yeah. Uh, You have a bunch of doctors, and they say, hey, listen, you can choose from any of these doctors. They've done over a 1,000 operations to work on you. Or... There's that guy. He's <laughs> never done an operation before. Yeah. Which one do you want yeah. for your life? You're going to choose one of the people who's done it a thousand times. Sure. Or if you're a risk taker. <laughs> yeah. But the producers and the network yeah. behind Billions said, you know what? Let's take the fucking guy who has no experience yeah. and never taken an acting class. Yeah. How great 
do you have to be in that room to get the job over people who went to fucking Juilliard? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was something that was very um, uh, surreal about it because I knew Brian and David before the show. And we were good friends. We were friends for, 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 with, for a while. And then they Brian told me. Brian and David Levine. Yeah, the creators of Billions. And Brian, was, you know, they both were like, hey, we want you to come in for this pilot that we're doing about finance. And so I came in and read for a couple different roles. And they were like, oh, Showtime likes you. And then as they cast the show, they got an actor that they wanted for a major role. And they called me and they were like, that was, we thought that was maybe a little too out of your depth, which of course it was. But they said, listen, we can try to find you a one-off role in the pilot or you can wait and if we go to series we'll write you a role and i was like a no-brainer i'm like you guys have paul giamatti damian lewis maggie siff and Molly ackerman yeah i'm gonna you guys are gonna go to series and then they were but you know how the business works it's getting that opportunity to then they wrote me in for four episodes but here's something interesting and if your manager and agent were here they would probably jump over the table and strangle me yeah i say ad nauseum relationships everybody it's it's so so you have a a great manager yeah you have great agents yeah you have a great lawyer all right yeah so he has the team everybody sure but guess what happens he gets a text on his phone from brian koppel yeah hey listen i have this new show i'm doing i want you to come in and so then he tells his team and they arrange everything and they work on everything and they make it stress-free for him probably to get the material but if brian koppelman is the way he is with relationships sometimes he might just say hey i'm sending you the sides i'm sending you the script well he's got some cool people on that show from relationships like that like he's and he's i mean it's when I was when I was in high school, my friend's stepdad said something. It's like it's not who, it's not who you know, it's who knows you, and and that's been a thing where Jay and I getting the serious show was as much as Jay and I hanging out, making each other laugh. His girlfriend was like, "You guys should do a podcast." We started doing a podcast. I had built a relationship with Sirius XM from going on O and A that they asked me. They were like, I was talking to one of the Comedy Central guys, and they're like, oh, we have a new Comedy Central radio station. It's serious. Maybe you should be a host for that. And I was like, oh, let's take a meeting. And I went in the meeting. I was like, Jay and I are doing this podcast. This should be the radio show. And then they were like, well, we don't know. You know you know how it is being a manager. There's that trepidation of like, well, let's try to do our way. And I was like, just put Jay and I on, and we'll be fine. And they gave us six test shows. It was fucking it was fun it was us hanging out and it's turned into four years of four days a week on Sirius XM from six to eight that's a relationship it's Jay and I's relationship and then my relationship and just bringing them together and that's what Koppelman and Levine knew me watched me go up the ranks of New York stand-up because Koppelman would always check in on me he never handed me anything until billions that opportunity but up then he, he, he was interested I was living you know under the train in Queens in a windowless room doing open mics and check spots and and he's like, how's it going? I got Montreal in 2011. And he's like, you got to quit drinking. And I quit drinking. And, you know, it's just and then that opportunity meets it where he's like, hey, we're doing this pilot. Why don't you come in? And then I've been on one of the coolest shows, one of the coolest jobs I'll probably ever have. It's one of the greatest shows you'll ever see. Yeah. I mean, to be a part of that machine 
is insane. It's surreal. You know, when we're talking about Orny, it's like a prize fighter. You got to get your team together. Sure. You got to get the right fights. You got to put everything together. This team is going to put you in a place and whatever. And you have a great team. Sure. It should be noted that in our business, you can have the greatest team in the world. And if you test for SNL and they give you the contract and you go to Lauren, hey, listen, okay, Lauren, we're from the firm of Schwartz, 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 and Schwartz. And this clause here, we'd like to amend that and take that out. And Lauren will probably just say, or his lawyer, we'll just get something else. Yeah. So you could have the greatest team and they can't do anything. Or you have the greatest team and I can name a hundred examples of how great managers and agents have helped position their artists in a way that's life-changing. But I think it should be noted that in your case with this one show. Yeah that the relationships trump everything. Sure. And so the example that we gave before doesn't hold weight with you. But it kind of does because it in in a way it, it takes all of those things for it to come together. This H, like the HBO special, that I mean that's like for me that that's the the title fight. And that's that's everything that I've ever wanted to do. And it's an HBO hour. It's a thing that, you know, you, I remember putting on Carlin and, and, and all the Chappelle's killing him softly is, is the reason I'm a comedian. It's the thing that I was like, this is the greatest thing in the world. And it was it's 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 all those relationships snowballing. You got to pack it all together when you when your heart when you're a dick and, and no one wants to work with you, then it affects your relationships and your team. Even if you have the best team, if you're hard to work with, that's going to get to people and they're going to be like, oh, I've heard they're difficult or is like this guy's so easy to work with. And that's. I think a mix of team and relationships is like you do your work and then you make sure that your team is providing you the opportunity to continue down that road. Yes. And the HBO special is an insane opportunity because, you know, everybody always talks about Netflix or Netflix, this Netflix, that, but for people who really know comedy and even the people that Netflix put on in the beginning and paid the big money to, these were HBO people. Yeah. Netflix became the New York Yankees overpaying for people. And I should not say overpaying because I think everybody deserves what they get. And But they had a lot. They were throwing the most money God around. God knows that Chappelle and Chris Rock and those people should make that kind of money and more. But the point I'm trying to make from what they made at HBO to yeah. what they got at Netflix. So... It was sort of like in that situation. So to get an HBO special, there were normally only three a year. Yeah. And it was like Chris Rock and Jerry. And it was crazy. When you saw the preview on HBO, whenever you saw that first preview, because there wasn't social media and there wasn't like, you didn't see the Instagram photo of the set of them being like, I tape my HBO special. It just all of a sudden there was a preview and they're like, there's a new Chris Rock hour. Like bigger and blacker. I remember when that preview came out on the heels of, bring the pain and watching the trailer for bringer i was like i was like punching the couch because i was like i want to watch it now like i want to see that new rock hour right now and it was the hbo thing it was i mean i mean when i even thought it was a shot there's been two moments in my life where it feels like i'm standing in cold water because i'm so nervous screen testing for snl and right before i went on stage knowing that HBO was in the audience and they're like, you're about to go do an hour. This is either going to result in an HBO special or not. And it was that cold water feeling where you're like, I'm fine. No, you're just like talking. That was my biggest regret about 
screen testing for SNL was I, I feel like I took it too seriously. I feel like if I would have just had fun and, and fucked around, it, I would have felt better about my performance. But that, yeah, that cold water feeling, but HBO gave me that cold water feeling. And then it was great to kind of, you know, how, how past experiences set you up for, for next experiences, that cold water feeling of SNL. I remembered that when I was in that cold water feeling for HBO. And then I was like, what am I doing? So what if I don't get it? I can still work the I can still be a comic. I quote that Dana Gould speech from, from just for laughs. I want to say 2013 or 14. Every comedian should know that. Because it's like, it's like the Advil. Why don't you tell our audience the part about the speech that meant the most to you? Uh, the, I mean, there's a, there's a part where Dana Gould, who's just the first comedian I ever worked on stage on a paid gig in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Really? When he was 17. That's old. awesome. I think Dana Gould is one of the most underrated comedians of all time. Kevin, I think, the late Kevin Meany, Dana Gould. I don't care. I mean, that's like that. Yeah. When stand up stood out, it's another great comedy documentary you should watch about My Boston. Solemn yeah. But um, Dana Gould, Simpsons, I mean, the guy's just fucking prolific. And uh, he has this amazing speech that I always tell when like one of my friends is going through it or if I'm going through it, I'll look it up. And he gives a speech. My favorite part is, is he says, listen, outsiders who aren't comedians will tell you that there's this definition of making it. Uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. I'm not saying the, you know, I'm not quoting it accurately, but I'm saying the point was he was saying people will make you feel like you haven't made it. But if you're a comedian, you made it. You're doing the job. You're hired. It's like that's the feeling you should carry around. Is like that's the feeling I try to carry around. It's like I get to work at. I get to part of my job is to talk to you today. You know what I mean? From the beginning of the podcast, it's like, that's part of my, what the fuck? What am I upset about? I'm upset because Vulture doesn't put me on a top 10 list of guys you needed to hear about yesterday. It's like, man, I got the fucking bonfire. I get to do eight hours of legitimate, just improv comedy with Big J Okerson, who is pound for pound, the funniest person off the top of his head working in the business. And I'll, I'll put that, I mean, the, the speed of Jay is fucking insane and he's one of my best friends. So I just get to sit there and talk on a, a phone conversation that maybe I would have had, if, I were, if Jay and I were comics in the 80s and we're both in hotels on the fucking road, just watching the cable on the phone talking, that gets to be my job now. Now I get income from that because it's a fucking radio show and people just get to listen to those conversations. So it's like, I always try to remember that part of Dana Gould's speech where it's like, you made it, you got the job, fuck everything else, fuck busy work. That's just other people trying to make you feel like you're not good enough. I'm my own harshest critic. Like I say that I don't need to read YouTube comments and Reddit. And I do sometimes cause I'm, I'm a masochist, but I'm my own harshest critic. Like, I'm like, I'll get off stage and be like, that fucking hour blows. Brian Stern, my manager, who I love to death. Great, great manager. Guy changed my life. Guy completely took me out of waiting tables. Let me have opportunities to be a comic. But I remember I filmed my Comedy Central half hour in Boston. And I got off stage and I was like, that fucking sucked. And he was like, why? He kind of saw the depth. As a manager, you see the depths of our own criticisms of course because you're standing right next to us and you're like jesus christ dude don't dip down that low as common as it is for me to hear and as much as i've been a part of that 
it shocks me every time I hear it. I want to believe the human condition can be a positive it thought can. process of their work. You know, you want. But I also think it's. I don't th to, to look at that kind of thing as a negative aspect, or or just purely negative. I think is the wrong way to look at it because I think like everything is a is a wave. Everything is an up and a down. And I think if you're going to be able to hold the attention of a thousand people in that theater and murder, I mean fucking murder with like original yourself, you're you're fucking prying yourself open. You kind of got to snap back in a way to save yourself. We got to be like hey, I'm not shit. Because if you don't and you dilute your own thinking to be like, I'm the fucking man, then you're just not funny anymore. Okay, so there's diluting your thinking. Sure. And then there's that sucked. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm just trying to talk you into why I'm okay. I think, you know, I also you know think... What I mean? And when you say that sucked, when you normally say that sucked, I want to know. Because a lot of times people don't really get a sense of what it is a person of your depth is talking about. So there's two kinds of that sucked. Yeah. There's the that sucked. I was off. My timing was off. I yes. fucked up that joke. I flubbed that tag. That sucked. Or there's the holy shit, I was flawless up there and I bombed. Yeah. That sucked. The yeah. crowd, the crowd. The tones are this. If you hear that sucked, that was the crowd's fault. That if, if it's got that venom on it, where you're like, that sucked. That sucked. Did anyone notice that guy was fucking walking through the audience? There's that's that that's that venomous, like that sucked. Fuck this venue. Get a monitor. You fucking why are drinks more important than the comedy? That's that sucked. When you hear a comic go, that sucked. That was I wasn't tight. I tried to riff on something and it failed. I missed the tag that gets me to the next bit. That sucked. It's so funny when you say that. I automatically think of like a bit from like 20 years ago, <laughs> yeah. Rob Schneider and the word dude. Oh, yeah, dude. Remember, oh, yeah. Remember that? Yeah, everybody, dude, it's like the way you say dude. That's right. Yeah, but it really is, it, tone is everything with, because there are, I think those are the two types of that sucked. And those are the, <laughs> and sometimes it's just like, if, it, if it's a mix, you're just like, why the fuck am I doing this? <laughs> there was, then it's just you question everything. You're like, just fucking, I could have been happy marrying that girl from high school and <laughs> fucking working at a Toyota car dealership. <laughs> those are the ones where you just look, where you look outside. Those are when I see the people getting, when I'm getting on the subway in Queens and heading in and you see them getting off and you just know they're ordering food and have a loved one to watch a tv show with and you're just like all right <laughs> this aliens joke better work or we're fucking it's a long cab ride home hey everybody let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success it's a project i've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition whether you want to do stand-up sketch improv acting writing producing directing radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, 
you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. I believe it or not, I have seen you in New York and the clubs, but I sort of, sometimes I go and I hide. And yeah, I, I love that. And I just, you know, watch. And please, I really... please, if we know each other or I know of you, please hide from me because I, I don't want to perform for people that I know. It fucking racks me. <laughs> well, it's just sometimes when you've been a part of something for a long time, and you go, it's a wonderful feeling when people come up to you one after the other. And it's just that people are so, it's incredible talking. Yeah. But sometimes you just want to just roll into New York and just catch a little bit and yeah. try to ride out. But I think the first time I saw you really on television, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, I believe it was Conan was your first. Very, yeah, it was, that was my first late night. The, yeah. the very first TV thing I ever did was live at Gotham on Comedy Central. I did their last season, but that was like quick. You know, it was like one of those premium blend sets, but it was just short and fast. But yeah, my Conan yeah. Yeah, so in I, uh, 2013. I, so I saw the Conan set, and now normally, in my humble opinion, yeah, stand-ups on Conan don't really kill that much oh yeah but you destroyed the place not that it's a measure of anything should be or whatever you got like five applause breaks it was uh what's funny is back when i used to read the youtube comments before I, i taught myself not to do that that was the first clip where i i i remember reading a youtube comment and being like stop now because it doesn't get better than this where this guy this guy wrote like clearly they the, clearly these applauses aren't real and you're like ah, i'm good i'm good because i was there and you're just like it, that kind of feeling of like i can't win more than this as a guy being like that's not real laughter and you're like yeah it was just that was um you know that conan set was possibly one of my favorite moments in comedy for a lot of reasons in that one of my just top moments in comedy because J.P. Buck at Conan. He's the talent booker. Yeah, he's the talent booker. Guy. And he is a tremendous guy. But what he's the best at is just being like, hey, I like this joke, this joke, this joke. Can you do them? And then you're like, yeah. And then he's like, then go do them. He's not, you know what I mean? There, there are some talent bookers in the past that, that don't work in talent, you know, and it comes and goes, depends on the talent booker. That really will be like, this sentence is weird. And J.P.'s kind of like, whatever you got, you know, do what you do. Uh, JP giving me that Conan spot. And then Nate Bargatze, one of the best comedians working and one of my best friends, absolutely, uh, was moved to LA. And so he was out there with his wife and his, his brand new baby. And I got to stay with Nate. And it was just kind of like this awesome moment where Nate is built for late night. He's like Mark Norman. It's like Sam Marill. It's uh, Joe Mackey. Like, there's like a lot of guys where, guys specifically, I'm talking their styles where they just, you need a late night set? Like, zip, let me cut it off. There's six minutes, killer jokes. I love that. I love those kind of comics. You know, Joe List is like that, where you can just, I feel like I can just take five minutes of his set and be like, there you go. That's a, that's a perfect late night. And Nate was the first guy that I watched, just kept doing them and killing them. And, do, and you're his friend, and you're like, yeah, am I ever going to do one? You know? And 
but what ended up happening was Nate had this like elder statesman kind of vibe to him. So normally if I'm doing Conan and I'm there with my cousin and a girlfriend, everyone's nervous. Everyone's like, ah, well, how's this going to go? But Nate's just got that. I call him the basset hound of comedy. He's just got <laughs> like this, like, I don't know, man. <laughs> you know, like, and, and he knows JP and he knows people and he knows Conan and he knows Andy. So he's, he's done it so much that having him there with me and just kind of hanging out felt like, oh shit, man, we're in the green room of a funny bone. You know, we're, we're at go bananas in Cincinnati. Like it's that feeling where you're like, oh, I'm gonna go do my set. And it just, it's amazing it, that he did that for you. Yeah. He had the, my favorite moment was, uh, I was standing at the curtain about to go on Conan and Nate's like being walked back, you know, so he can watch the set with uh, JP and I'm staring at my feet and I didn't know Nate was in. He goes, what? He's going to stare at your feet the whole time. And I like looked up and it was Nate and I was like, oh, what's up? And then the curtains opened. So it was like this continuation of that kind of green room thing where you're like, ah, nah. you know, you walk out, and you're like, hey, and then you black out <laughs> when you do your face the first thing you just it's like getting hit really hard in football you take that first shot and then you're like oh now it's all muscle memory and you just do but you know it was it that was like a a great experience well i mean also when you're I mean, I think we can all agree that Conan is, if he's not a genius, he's as close yeah, he to is. genius as he's, possible. He's absolutely a genius. He's like... And so when you're chosen by a genius to work in front of them, <sighs> that's one of the greatest feelings in the world. It's... Um, like, so fortunately, today, that didn't happen. Yeah. For Conan, it happened. For Conan, it happened. What, <laughs> what was crazy, uh, it's like, if you're a fan of comedy and you you start doing comedy you start bumping up against your your idols you just start watching chris rock walk into a room and go on stage watching jim norton i remember just jim norton walking in the room and me being like fuck this is weird you know what i mean like trying to alert like find a pocket of air because you're just like fuck man does this guy know does this guy know i'm such a weird patrice patrice was the guy you knew you didn't approach patrice o'neill yeah patrice o'neill patrice yeah or like even Bill Burr, like Bill Burr, I'll just like even to this day, I'm still I'm such a big Bill Burr fan that I'm like, hey Bill, you know, you're like, <laughs> how are you? Just walking by, like Colin, I'll just be like, sir. Uh, but it it in comedy when you kind of get to bump up against your idols, it's really weird. So Conan is a genius, but what, my favorite is just we had a moment after my first set where he came out, you know, he does a handshake, dance odor, he'll be at whatever in fucking D.C. tomorrow. Thanks. We had a good show. See you tomorrow. And you know, you're, you're, you're talking with him and he leans over and he's like, man, that was your first, that was your first late night. And I was like, yeah, that, that was it. He goes, that was great. We're not going to use it, but that was great. And just to watch him, <laughs> watch him, just that click of funny, just that little bit of click of funny. I was like, man, that was fucking great. And then the second time I did Conan, the crap, I didn't have a good set. And it was, they, that sucked. It was that. It was that sucked. It wasn't my, I felt like the audience wasn't there for it. So I, I, I felt like I hit, but I, it kind of rattled me. But anyways, Conan calls me over to the couch after we say goodnight, you know, he's like, we're going to come back and you'll be on the couch. And he goes like, all right, Dan Soda, everybody. And then he leans over and he goes, that audience fucking sucked. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, it was such validation. It was such a validation of like, fuck yeah, Conan, they blew. <laughs> Those guys blew. Thank you. All right. I feel good about myself again. And, and I the, never understand the late night shows. And maybe if Conan were here, he would dispute this or whatever. 
and maybe as a comic you say it's not I don't want that but I really believe that if there is the proper warm-up preparation for the crowd before a comedian goes on sure that that shouldn't ever happen like I'll, and that's to say the warm-up at Conan isn't good or no 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 I'll, I can diagnose the problem exactly I know exactly what it was because I know the mistakes that I made when you go back and you watch the tape you kind of see where it was number one I went to Conan alone Nate had moved to Nashville at this point. So Nate's gone. My corner man's gone. I should have had another friend come with me just to balance it out. But I was by myself. Big mistake. You had Ferdy Pacheco. Yeah. I needed someone. I was swimming in my own head. But you know what's odd is you said earlier that you don't like seeing people you know when you're doing an important set or something that you're working out. But someone you know versus... So this, that is great. So we're, we're releasing this. I haven't, in, in real time, we're going to break the timeline here. I haven't filmed the HBO special. I'm up in Montreal running the hour before I go to Dublin, and then I go to Edinburgh to do Fringe to run the hour before I tape in October. Which is weird because you're going to run the hour to audiences that are not the audiences that you're going to do the hour for. Yes, that's also important. So they're laughing different times for people in other countries. I know this is odd to for the audience to understand, but if you do an hour in Edinburgh and you do an hour in Philadelphia, they're laughing at different times. Sure. And if you use the boxing reference, if you don't mind, yeah. it's almost like working an opponent. The crowd isn't your opponent. Yeah. But you have to move a certain the silences. and you have to understand the silences and you have to revel in them. Yeah. Whereas there might be laughs in that in Philadelphia and sure. applause. So that's why I'm surprised you're going to two different countries to run the hour. And then you're here in Canada. Canada is the closest to the United States. You're, you know, they know. Absolutely. The, the, the jokes work. And I think that, that this process is kind of a, a calculated one where I can come and run the hour here in Montreal, kind of see what drops off from the translation from the United States to Canada and then take it over to Dublin and then to Scotland. And I think the reason that it's important that I do that is it gives me uh, different aspects on jokes. Different. What, it, what I basically get to do is I get to... I've taped three specials at this point and what I what I know about the process I'm a learner from doing something I, I can't learn something from a book I have to do it every job I just have to do it I have to learn and then I can do it I feel like this point with the special what I've learned is when you're taping the special as a comic that's a moment number one it's very enjoyable but number two you're like oh you guys see all of the tags and small the small things all the tiny work that I've done line by line you see all of it now when you're taping the special because the audience is so geeked up they want to know all that you know what I mean it's a celebration so what I'm trying to do by going to Scotland is put more rivets and folds and craftsmanship into this hour so that it does work for an audience in the UK and the United States and Canada where I can get the best hour possible that I can do. That's all I'm concerned about is just making the best hour I can make. And I think this gives me an element of throwing me off my game for a little bit and just being like, how do you handle a UK audience? How do you slow your bits down? Are you desperate for those silences to be filled? Cause you know, you can, that's how, that's, I, I think how a comedian falls into hack is you is you you know one type of laugh how to get one type of laugh from one type of bit and then you just keep working that bit but yeah i think it's it's uh it's important to go work that hour in a different way and awesome. just 
I, I kind of want to expose it to a different audience to see like, because I might get shit that I would have never got doing the helium in Portland because I'm coming back and I'm, I'm going to do six weeks on the road in the US, then tape the special. Got it. So it's not like Scotland to tape. As you know, I was fortunate enough to do a documentary surrounding the only living person to ever admit to killing JFK from the grassy knoll. This is a guy who spent 50 years in prison, just got out, and we have exclusive footage of his interview and over 20 different interviews, along with interviews with five of the greatest JFK assassination experts in the world. Once you watch these videos, your perception of the world and what happened that day will change forever. It's incredible. Just go to ikilljfk.com. You can pick up the documentary I Kill JFK and the rare interviews of five of the greatest JFK assassination experts in the world. I guarantee you, once you watch this footage, you will be blown away. To quote one of the experts in the film, when Trump said he wanted to drain the swamp, what do you think's at the bottom of the swamp? ikilljfk.com check it out and that wraps up part one of two episodes you can check out the next episode this coming thursday and here's a preview of the next episode if you're frustrated with a coworker, don't let that affect your work just do your work know that most shit that people spill on you is their own shit it's not your shit they're spilling on you it's their shit so be patient Work hard and, and try to be good to yourself. That's something I'm learning now. Try to be decent to yourself. Treat yourself with respect. Love yourself. Because I think too many times it's misconstrued as narcissism or self-centered. It's not. Love yourself and you'll get there. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. You're going far. Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.